Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Peter Miller will join us to discuss the Smart Swarm. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Mr. Peter Miller is here to talk about his many years of research that led to his book titled The Smart Swarm, How Understanding Flocks, Schools, and Colonies Can Make Us Better at Communicating, Decision-Making, and Getting Things Done. So Mr. Miller has been the senior editor at National Geographic for over 25 years, and I realize that I'm supposed to say how the work of our guests is interesting and fabulous, and more often than not, that's true. But with this book, I really, really mean it. I love this book. You will be amazed after you read about what all of these simple creatures can teach us. So Mr. Miller, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Elise. How are you? Very good. So why don't we start out by, can you tell us what a smart swarm is? Yeah, sure. A smart swarm, very simply, is a group that makes the members in the group smarter, healthier, safer, or more powerful than they would be by themselves. So basically what we're talking in nature, we're talking about things like ant colonies, beehives, termite mounds, schools of fish, flocks of birds, herds of reindeer. And in human terms, we're talking about companies, committees, organizations, juries, town meetings, anywhere where you see group behavior that's aimed at solving a problem or making a decision. So you spent a couple of years looking into these patterns of collective intelligence in various groups of animals, whether it be ants, insects, or even humans. So there's so many examples of group behaviors out there. How did you narrow down exactly what you were going to study? Well, I decided to focus on the work of of one animal group that faced that solved one particular problem, to look at the work of one biologist who was sort of unraveling the mystery behind that particular behavior. So, as you said, there's so much fascinating behavior out there. I mean, people spend their whole lives studying a certain aspect of ant behavior or bee behavior. So when you step way back, like I have, and look at them with a really big picture, you really have to focus tightly. And so uh, I focused on the work of Deborah Gordon, a biologist at Stanford who works with a nasty little biting ant in Arizona Mm -hmm. called um, the red harvester ant. Uh, I shouldn't call it nasty. I mean, actually, I'm, I actually admire them, but they, they sting. And the sting is it's quite painful. So everybody who works out there has pant legs, you know, duct taped, and they wear gloves. And apparently the ants can run up your leg faster than you can keep them out. So kind of like combat duty to, uh, to dig up one of those ant colonies to see how they work. Have you actually been bitten? No, I was lucky. That's good. I didn't get bitten. So when you were studying with Dr. Gordon, specifically with the ants, did you see any principles of organization amongst that group? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was, this was fascinating. And, of course, the, I picked uh, Deborah Gordon because she's tuned into this uh, way of thinking. She is a, a member of the Santa Fe Institute, which is a complexity institute. And so she has a way of using the ant colony as a model 
for a complex adaptive system. And that really enables you to put the pieces together pretty, pretty easily. But her particular specialty is what she calls task allocation. Okay. And roughly what that means is, well, how does an ant colony use the resources it has? How does it distribute the workers that it has to take care of the work that needs to be done if nobody is in charge? There are no leaders in an ant colony. There are no managers, no supervisors, no architects. The queen is not a, really a queen. She's just an egg machine. That was my next uh, question, actually. Yeah. So how is it possible that there is such a lot of work getting done, such specialized work, without anybody telling anybody else what to do. And that's her focus. So I thought that would be very interesting because I was interested in how that might be used in a human context to say you had a corporation facing an environment of unpredictable changing circumstances, just like an ant colony is out in the desert with the weather. What can you learn from the way that an ant colony self-organizes to help you keep ahead of chance? So that was what I was went out to visit her and, and watch the ants uh, running around in the sand. So the ants that you wrote about get by by touching and smelling other ants, and that's not exactly smart. But most humans are a bit more intelligent than the average ant. So what can an <laughs> ant teach me? Or what can a group of ants teach me versus that one ant? Well, that's that. you put your finger on it. Um, we really should be comparing ourselves to the colony, not to the individual ants, because ants are a piece of the colony in the same way that our fingers or our skin or our heart or our lungs are pieces of our body. The ant colony is the body that natural selection acts upon. So everything is really, everything an ant does is in the service of the health and, and prosperity of, of the body, which is the colony. Can you tell me about some of these organizational patterns, how they've actually influenced the business world or and even our government? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, there was a fascinating experiment done about 20 years ago in which it was demonstrated that an ant colony, and we probably all know this anyway, but it had to be scientifically proved, <laughs> an ant colony has to know, knows how to find the shortest path between itself and something it wants. So, for example, um, you have a nest out in the desert. If there are a half a dozen possible things that it could go collect and bring back to eat, it will find the best one and then devote the most workers to that one. So that's a useful task, being able to find the shortest path between the best of your choices. Mm -hmm. So some computer artificial intelligence experts looked at that and said, well, you know, we can do that with virtual ants. We can teach the virtual ants to behave like natural ants, and they can find the shortest path for us between my computer and your computer over the internet, mm -hmm. uh, through the, how to route it, or for a company, uh, which, how to route trucks in the most efficient manner, or how to solve difficult logical problems like combinatorial optimization problems, the most famous of which is the traveling salesman problem. So ants, it turns out, are very good at solving the traveling salesman problem, which for the average person is basically unsolvable. But the ants, by using basically trial and error, each one, finding a not-so-good solution, they combine each little advance that they make every time that they go out and try to find a better route. And they build on each other's slight improvement until they get a pretty good solution. So the ants, in other words, have a way of solving extremely complex, difficult problems good enough to survive. And that's something that a company or corporation can use. So there's a company 
in Texas called Air Liquide, mm -hmm. which makes industrial gas. And I went out there and met the folks who decided one day to base their logistics on ant colony principles. This wasn't an accident because they had some consultants come in from a complexity company. And they had said, you know, an ant colony knows how to deal with complexity. Let's see how we can apply this to your company. So every night uh, now, about 8 o'clock, they take all the variables that they have in their, uh, in their business from the price of electricity to how much oxygen to make at one plant to whether to route the truck to pick up the oxygen to go to the medical center or go to the oil refinery. All of these variables, which would drive you crazy, drive anybody crazy trying to figure it out. Sure. They put it into this big computer and they let the ants figure it out. And in the morning, they spit out a plan that works for them and they saved millions of dollars. That's brilliant. This leads me to my next question about dumb swarms. Are there any ant behaviors that perhaps the swarm could just turn against itself? Well, there's two things that are interesting about that question. One is, yes, there is a very famous form of ant behavior called the mill, which has been observed among army ants. And basically what it means is that ants have a, a behavior in which they leave a pheromone trail for other ants. And the, the pheromone trail is they drag their, their abdomen along the ground and it leaves a chemical that is very um, strong to the smell that each ant can smell when it comes across it. And it says, follow me. And they use that to help guide other ants to food or to help find a new nest. It has a number of different uses, but it's, very, it's a very strong behavioral motivator. And there have been occasions in the jungle where ants will start going in a circle, and pretty soon you'll have thousands of ants following each other in a circle, and they just keep going and going and going until their little feet give out and die because they're blindly following their instincts. But the other question that came to mind to me when you were saying that was about whether they're dumb or not. They're not really, they're not really dumb. We just don't understand what they're doing, I think. They, um, they don't see the big picture. They don't probably understand why they're doing what they're doing. They don't even react to the same situation the same way every time. And yet, when you combine 10,000 ants, when you combine this behavior and they interact with one another, it's brilliant. So it seems that with the smart swarms, these swarms or flocks, they're optimizing their behavior for the environment, and that provides a successful outcome. And then when I say dumb swarms, the group is essentially turning on itself. So why does it work in, in some organisms but not other organisms? Well, the biological answer is that the worker ants in a colony are all sisters. Mm -hmm. they're, all, they're all female, and they're all descended from the same mother. So they have a genetic stake in the outcome, uh, in the healthy prosperity of the group. In other words, each little ant is more than willing to give its life for the good or even the convenience of the group. So we've, we've been very ant-heavy in our discussion. Uh, so I'd, I just want to clarify that um, your book is actually separated um, into different chapters based on different animals. Honeybees, right. for instance, termites, birds, flocks of birds, uh, and locusts. And then you dip into human behavior as well. So human swarms. Let's talk about human swarms. Are, are, are we a smart swarm? Or are we a dumb swarm? We're a funny combination. 
I think that you can define our group behavior by two ends of a spectrum. At one end, you would have herding behavior in which we essentially do what other people are doing. And a lot of the time that works just fine. You know, if you're coming out of an airplane and you don't know which way the baggage claim is, you know, you kind of just follow where the group goes and that the group usually knows where it's going. That's sort of one behavior. At the other end, we're pretty selfish individ- uh, as, as animals. We're not committed to a colony. We're not instinctively committed to the group. We're basically in it for ourselves and our families and, you know, whatever we happen to believe in. So I would say that's sort of like the game theory end of the spectrum, in which case we're, we're trying to maximize our personal benefit. So in between those two, I think you can find a lot of interesting behavior. For instance, standing ovations. Yeah, the standing ovation is interesting to me because it's a powerful social gesture and yet it seems to me to reflect the kind of unpredictability and kind of inefficiency of a lot of what we do. I mean, think about it. You, uh, after a, you, everybody's been in this situation. You know, maybe you're at a concert and you're there because your brother is a musician in the high school band. At the end of the concert, chances are you're going to get a standing ovation because everybody's there to support. Whether it was a good concert or not, everybody's going to stand up. <laughs> if you go to, a, if you go to, even if you're paying good money to go see a professional orchestra, they might have to be good for you to want to stand, give them a standing ovation. And what happens is you kind of wait and see what other people are going to do. If somebody over there stands up, somebody over there stands up, then you say, oh, I don't know, how do I feel? People want to stand up. They want to do a standing ovation. Am I, am I with the group or not? Like it, then, then you stand up. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing if then you stand up and you look around and nobody else is standing up. Mm-hmm. So maybe you sit down again. Or maybe it catches on, like, you know, like a forest fire, and, and all of a sudden everybody's standing up. Well, we influence each other so much in an exercise like that. There's so much social pressure that's being exerted that you can get groups that, clap and stand and holler for a performance that really wasn't that great and not, people didn't even like that much <laughs> but just because it got started and then it couldn't get stopped and then you have others that you know maybe deserved a standing ovation but the people who stood up were in the back row and then nobody saw them and uh, it didn't catch on so why do we do that the honeybees aren't going to do that it doesn't really do anything good for that group who's actually at the concert that day <laughs> um, well that's a very that's a very good question because um, these uh, two um, economists and complexity theorists, uh, John Miller and Scott Page, they wrote a nice paper about the standing ovation problem. And essentially what they said is that it's a model for contagious behavior. So you think about what kinds of behavior is contagious, fads, fashions, diseases are contagious. But mm-hmm. you think about a product, you know, do you have to buy the, the iPhone 4, you know, or, or can you wait? It, it kind of depends on, you know, whether you're susceptible to being influenced by other people. And so a lot of the things that we, a lot of the behavior that we, that you can see around you kind of fits into this mold of, of social contagion, which is why the standing ovation is interesting because it it's not smart. It's not like the behavior of the bees and the ants that, that has been evolved over hundreds and millions of years to serve the group. It's kind of an oddity that reflects kind of our unpredictable and reflect uh, imitative potential. 
Absolutely. Um, so do you have any final words on the Smart Swarm? I, I really, truly, truly enjoyed this book. And any final words for us on that? Well, I, um, I think if you come away from the book with a greater appreciation for the fact that nature is full of intelligence and that the problem-solving ability that's out there it can be inspiring at the very least, and in some cases can actually provide practical solutions, then um, I will be happy that my book has made a little difference. Oh, and your website, too, smartswarm.com, I believe? That's right. Um, check out the videos on there of actual swarm behavior, herd behavior, flock behavior, um, especially the starlings. They're gorgeous. Yeah, they really are. I was so impressed with that. So I have one more question that's a little bit off topic, but you happen to have the job that I want when I grow up. <laughs> um, can you tell us how you ended up with the best job in the world? Uh, well, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm pretty happy um, having worked at the magazine uh, as long as I have. I was a reporter for a newspaper, a small newspaper, mm -hmm. and um, 25 years ago um, there was a test that, that was given every now and then to see if people could write uh, photo captions okay. because editors of the magazine felt that uh, the photo captions had to be so good that they had a separate staff to do that because people who, you know, who pick up the National Geographic, if you watch people, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's still true to a degree, they love the photography and then they read the caption to see what, what the picture is about. Sure. And, if the, and if the caption is enticing enough, then, you know, it draws them into the whole project. And so that's how I got started. And then I became a, a regular writer, and for the last decade or so, I've been an editor. Fabulous. I'm jealous. Thank you, you so bet. much. Okay. Bye-bye. And you were just listening to Peter Miller discussing the Smart Swarm. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. There's a million things to be You know that there are And if you want to live high, live high And if you want to live low, live low Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are You can do what you want The opportunity's on and if you find a new way, you can do it today, you can make it all true, and you can make it undo, you see, ah, it's easy, ah, you only need to know, well if you want to say yes, say yes, and if you want to say no, say no Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are And if you want to be me, be me And if you want to be you, be you Cause there's a million things to do You know that there are You can do what you want the opportunity's on And if you find a new way You can do it today You can make it all true And you can make it undo You see Ah, it's easy Ah, you only need me 
Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. Cause there's a million things to be. You know that there are, you know that there are, you know that there are, you know that there are. You know that there are. All right, it's time for to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Part of My Swarm, or Forced into Solitude. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if uh, they should be part of the swarm, or forced into solitude, and a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Miller, are you ready to play the game? Oh, God, I can hardly wait. <laughs> <laughs> I promise it won't be painful. <laughs> Okay, here we go. All right, number one, Bristol Palin. Bristol Palin, yes. I think there's room in the in the swarm for Bristol. Which swarm? <laughs> um, you mean which? Um, I think there's room in the smart swarm for Bristol. She did recently leave um, her y- fiance. Yes. Well, yeah. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that there isn't heartache in the in the smart swarm, but <laughs> I don't I don't really blame her for her. Um, for following her heart too much. It was a smart move, the <laughs> latest one at least. <laughs> All right, number two, it's the actress Betty White. Oh, Betty's wonderful, yeah. Um, I think you need Betty White's in the, in the smart swarm for sure. She's unpredictable. Y- you need to have uh, wild cards. In the, everything can't be the, you know, you can't know what's going to happen every minute, and, and Betty's one of these actresses and, and characters who seems to do the outrageous and the and the perfect thing at the right time. Well, uh, number three, it's uh, Elena Kagan. Yeah, well, you need brainy people, too, right? <laughs> um, you definitely need, um, you need someone who has that kind of problem-solving skill in the swarm. She's in. All right. Now Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay's not in the swarm. <laughs> Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay, no hesitation. Um, did not make the Darwinian cut, I'm afraid. Wow. I think her dedication to the um, to the non-Lindsay world hasn't been proven yet. So everybody, I think, is sort of batting for her in this new new round. But until then, I think she's uh, outside looking in. Okay. Now the last but not least um, question from the Grokatron is British Petroleum, BP. <laughs> British Petroleum, yeah. <laughs> um they kind of come across as the evil empire in, in this whole story, don't you? I mean, um, I don't know. Um, I think um, you can't really kick them out without admitting some complicity. And uh, if you use as much oil as we do, and you, if you have the addiction, I don't think you can blame the, uh, the pusher that much. Fair enough. All right. Well, Mr. Miller, we want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game, The Grokatron 5000. And, of course, again, talking about your book, The Smart Swarm. Thank you very much My for your pleasure. Time. Yes, thank you, you so bet. much. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of The Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.